the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, or DAO, was a digital form of venture capital. It was an ambitious idea to provide a new decentralized business model for organizing corporations on top of the Ethereum blockchain. Few people in the crypto community were opposed to this premise, but the timeline was short, the code requirements were tremendous, and in retrospect, a vulnerability was inevitable. The DAO launched in May 2016, setting the record for the largest crowdfunding event in history. The following month, the DAO was hacked, and millions of dollars of Ether were stolen. The reverberations of the event were a referendum on how the Ethereum community governs itself. Matt Lysing is a reporter for Bloomberg, who has chronicled the DAO in his article, The Ether Thief. Matt continues to follow cryptocurrencies closely, as the internet of money fractals increasingly into the public consciousness. It was a pleasure talking to him, as it always is talking to the folks at Bloomberg. They always give a great and accessible understanding of technical topics. If you like this episode, we've done many other shows about cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies like Ripple. You can check out our back catalog by downloading the Software Engineering Daily app. Today, we only have it for iOS, but we're working on an improved back-end recommendation system. We're working on an Android app. We're working on a web front-end. If you're interested in contributing to the Software Engineering Daily ecosystem, you can go to github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We are focused on making an app ecosystem that works well for users of Software Engineering Daily because it's hard to find episodes that you want to listen to because we've got 600 episodes it's just a lot of topics, and you can upvote episodes, you can get recommendations based on your listening history. We hope it helps you, and I'd love to get your feedback on this project. Jeff at SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com. Thanks for listening. Matt Lysing is a reporter at Bloomberg. Matt, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about a variety of subjects in the cryptocurrency community. I originally messaged you to talk about the the DAO hack, and I certainly want to get into that because your coverage of it was really good, and there's just a really good piece on the DAO hack on Bloomberg. I'll put it in the show notes. People can certainly read through it, or many people probably have already read it. How did you get into reporting on cryptocurrencies? So it's a bit of a twisted tale. I've covered market structure for Bloomberg News for more than 10 years. When I say that to people, they're like, what is that? And in its essence, it's kind of like how markets work or don't work. So I started by covering derivatives exchanges back in before the financial crisis, where futures are traded at like the CME Group or NYMEX in New York, where oil prices are created. That led to the financial crisis when the swaps market blew up. I started covering swaps and all the reforms that came through the Dodd-Frank Act because I had a background in clearinghouses, and that's the way that the Congress kind of wanted the swaps market to be reformed. Then I started taking on sort of responsibility in the fixed income market, which is where how bonds trade, corporate bonds, or the U.S. Treasuries, how they trade. So, you know, obviously really big, huge, important markets. And throughout this process, you know, I had always heard about Bitcoin, and I kind of dismissed it. I didn't think something that had no underlying value could actually, like, stick around, and it was just sort of all speculative but then sometime in 2015, early 2015, I finally understood what blockchain was. And 
it totally opened my eyes because I realized instantly that any, everything I'd been covering for years was potentially going to be disrupted and changed radically. And so I just sort of went to my editor and said, I, I need to start covering this as my beat. He, you know, nobody at Bloomberg really knew much about it at that point, certainly not blockchain. They, they might have known about Bitcoin. So in that regard, I was a little early to it. And, you know, we just started started covering it. And then it turned out that I had sources from my old my other world, like Blythe Masters, who is, was at J.P. Morgan. I, I sort of knew her. She became the CEO of Digital Asset Holdings. I've known Dave Rudder for a very long time since he was at ICAP, and he was now heading up R3. So it just made a lot of sense. It just all kind of clicked, and I started reporting on it. That was like the early days of when Wall Street was really going crazy over the, the potential here for what blockchain could do. It wasn't even sometimes like at proof of concept stage, but the hype had definitely started by mid-2015 when we did a cover story for Markets Magazine on Blythe Masters and Digital Asset. Today it's getting real with cryptocurrencies, and it's no longer just implications. This stuff is solidifying into reality, and given the volume of intelligence behind these efforts, it seems almost like a foregone conclusion that there is going to be some serious disruption and i'm sure whatever degree of shock you felt when you when it first clicked in 2015 i'm sure that's only amplified in the last 2 years oh yeah yeah it's hard to kind of quantify it and it feels like 10 years it doesn't feel like 2 what i like to tell people is is the way i think about it in a way that sort of helps keep things straight is you've got the public blockchain stuff that's happening which is bitcoin and the ethereum network and then you've got the private stuff that's happening with enterprise solutions, so like Hyperledger or the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, where companies like JP Morgan and IBM are designing, you know, enterprise blockchains for private use for you know the financial industry or healthcare or supply chain management. So on the public side, like that stuff is out of the bag. The, the genie is out of the bottle, and that nothing's going to stop that. It's like Bitcoin is is unstoppable. It's one of the fascinating things about it. Ethereum, I believe, is, is unstoppable. It's just at an earlier stage. And those, those, you know, the digital apps that people are going to create on top of the Ethereum blockchain, that, that work is going on right now. And it's a lot of fascinating, really interesting stuff is being done. There's not much in the production stage yet, but I think that that's going to change in the next 12 months or so. That's going forward. Nobody's going to stop that work. On the private side, it's still an open question to me whether Wall Street can get its act together and trust each other enough or have privacy safeguards in place so that you can have a private blockchain for, I don't know, syndicated loans or, you know, other, the repo market, you know, things that could be, that haven't been updated for decades. So my beat, you know, that I'm, I'm following finance really closely and I find that stuff fascinating and, and it's still a bit up in the air, in my opinion, about whether we're going to see production level products coming from that side. Then on the, on the other side, the Ethereum stuff, the Bitcoin stuff, I mean, that that's that is our reality. And it's going to be I think it's going to be the new Internet in a few years. And if if it goes the way that folks want it to go, we won't even notice. You know, that's what they, they don't really want you to notice that the back end changes. They just want it to be seamless. So that's I think we're at a fascinating stage of, of development. And it's kind of like a, a, an epoch, if you want to put it that way. Do you think it is is it going to replace things or is it going to just be augmentative so for example you know people invest in 401ks and 
the value proposition of a 401k is that this investment is going to make sense in 20 or 30 or 40 years. And if you look at that sort of investment thesis, particularly given what 401k funds typically are investing in, I think like traditional stocks and bonds and financial instruments, making a 30 or 40 year time horizon bet on that financial system it, to me it seems completely preposterous but you know but, but there you just said that if it goes the way that people wanted to we're not really going to notice it so do you think this is is it a, a replacement system or is it is it an, an additive system i think it's both i think it definitely depends on what you're talking about your question reminded me of how my profession journalism or, or just you know writing in general has changed the, the format has changed right like you don't you don't get a newspaper delivered to your driveway anymore, but the need for information has never been greater. So you're just accessing it in a different format. The financial world, that, that same thing is, I think applies. You're, you're still going to need investments. You're still, the market still needs to be there. The regulators still need to be there to, to keep everybody from, you know, getting scammed and, and all of that. It's just, you know, Joe Lubin, who's at consensus, he talks about, there, like if, what Ethereum, the promise of it is that it puts a price on intermediators. So you have a company like Uber or Airbnb who come between an apartment owner or a car owner and a renter or a passenger. And they, they provide a great service, but they do take a cut out of that. And the idea of the Ethereum blockchain is a smart contract basically takes the, it, it's now a piece of code that does everything that Uber does or that Airbnb does, but the fees are, are, you know, minimal, if they're at all, like, you know, orders of magnitude smaller than the, the percentage cut that, that either one of those companies is taking right now out of every transaction that they arrange. And then the brilliant thing, in my opinion, is that you see all these initial coin offerings that are going out, and that that's what's going to fuel these the use here. So let's just call it a car coin for an Uber sort of competitor. You have to go out and buy CarCoin to access that car digital app on the Ethereum blockchain. Now, all the all the developers and all the coders who, who wrote that program are going to own a, a ton of CarCoin, and they're going to hope to see it go up in value, and that's how they're going to get paid. So it's really amazing to, to shift the economics of a system that in that way. So I, I think that's what people get really evangelical about. Yeah, so originally I wanted to talk to you about this this DAO hack, and I do want to talk to you some about that, but given that this space is moving so fast and your eye is so fixated on it, I feel like I would be doing a disservice to the listeners if I focused entirely on this news that has kind of you know come and gone and there's lessons to take away from it, and I do want to talk about some of those lessons, and we'll, we'll go into the DAO hack a little bit. But just to get things started with a contemporary lens you know we're talking today we were just talking before the show about bitcoin cash and there's a lot going on that i don't really understand could you maybe give us an overview i'm actually doing a, a show that's going to be entirely dedicated to this subject the segregated witness you know the bitcoin fork and kind of the different yeah. factions that are involved but i suspect that even an one entire show dedicated to it won't cover all the politics it won't cover all the I guess all of the the technical issues that are going on, or Maybe the animosity, or the animosity. You would need several several shows to contain that. Yes, but since you are a professional at reporting and condensing information, 
why don't you give us an overview that we can then you know springboard into more of a discussion for about what is going on, what motivates Bitcoin Cash to exist, and perhaps you know why Coinbase isn't supporting it, which is another area of controversy. Yeah, sure. And I'm I'm a little out over my skis here, but I, I can give you my layman's interpretation. And I'm that makes two I'm, of us. Yeah, what I'm mostly doing is basing this on my my much ex- more extensive knowledge of what happened with the Ethereum fork. So basically, the, the, a blockchain in its essence is a time ordered succession of transactions that have been verified by a distributed network. So everything is ordered, and if you and I, if I sold you a Bitcoin two years ago, it's back in the blockchain, it's been verified, it's there. And so if you now want to go sell that Bitcoin, the, one of the things the network will do is check that, you know, that transaction is still valid and that you own that Bitcoin from two years ago. Now, the network is, is really important, and, and that's, that's basically all the hard, hard drives around the world that are running the software that make up the backbone of, say, Bitcoin, and that's the blockchain. When this size limit debate came up in Bitcoin, it's been several years in, in the, you know, they've been arguing about it and, and proposing solutions. And what, what it came down to is you have to put a new version of the Bitcoin software out that all the, all the hard drives are running. And the vast majority of computers need to upgrade to that version. And that's known as a fork. So now what happens is at, at a certain block and a certain time, the network starts running this new version of the Bitcoin software. And, and so if you are trying to imagine it visually, I think of a tree limb that's, that's growing. And then at the end of that tree limb, you know, it's, it's stunted and a branch starts growing out from, from, one, from the end of that, that limb. And that's the fork. That's the new chain that, that the Bitcoin network is going to work off of. And, and all the transactions are going to go to that one and be verified and it's going to grow and grow and grow. Now, if you think of that end of that tree limb, there's more room there for another branch to grow. And in the case of Bitcoin Cash, I think what it, if it's like Ethereum, which I believe is the case, miners can continue, like they can choose not to upgrade and they can continue to use the old software so that the transactions that they, that they process will add to the old network. And that limb at the end will, will keep growing sort of straight. And you've got the fork and then you've got the straight. So the fork here is now just known as Bitcoin, but the, the one that keeps going straight is known, known as Bitcoin Cash. That's what happened in Ethereum when the, the fork was done, and that's why we have now Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Where it gets really kind of meta and weird is that I believe you now have dual transactions on each chain. So if you had, say, 10 Bitcoin before the fork, and you now, I believe, after the fork, you have 10 Bitcoin Cash. So that now is, is a digital currency and it has a value. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's kind of like you're through the looking glass here. And, and a lot of people who had Ethereum, you know, found themselves suddenly with Ethereum Classic. And Sorry, with just Ethereum Classic or with Ethereum Classic and Ethereum? With Ethereum Classic and Ethereum. Right. So you get a clone, basically. Yes. You, you get to play in both worlds. Right. And I think before Ethereum forked last year, this had never happened and people were like, you know, one of the other fascinating things here is that a lot of this stuff is happening in real time in front of everybody. And so it's just sort of like, okay, this is, wow, let's figure this out in front of the whole world. And so when we get into the Dow story, I can tell you a little bit about, you know, 
why that was sort of a monumental factor in what happened with the theft and everything. But so basically it's just a split in the network. And unless, you know, 100% of all the users go with the new software, the, the old software is going to continue to operate. And that's going to that's gonna have a kind of like a mirror chain that is, is out there and, and viable. And the Bitcoin Cash fork is, if I'm correct, it's the version of Bitcoin that the preponderance of miners prefer and because there was this debate between essentially the miners and the exchanges the miners wanted a system that was more benefiting of the hardware that they had already purchased because their hardware could could mine more effectively or or they had a more of a competitive advantage in that world and the exchanges wanted something where lightning networks or side chains allowed for faster transactions, higher transaction throughput, but more quote-unquote centralization where you have, you know, you don't necessarily need all the miners in the world to verify a given transaction. You might just have this centralized trust network verify certain buckets of transactions. Am I painting the right picture? I think you are. That sounds accurate, but this is now I'm really sort of not, I'm out of my depth, but I think you're on the right track because I've seen Bitcoin Cash already referred to as the first China coin. Okay. <laughs> Meaning that, so you might not know, but I think it's somewhere around 60% of the mining that's done in the Bitcoin network is, is done in China. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge infrastructure there with the, the hard drives and, and Bitcoin mines. And they a lot of times have access to subsidized electricity. And so... That would make sense that Bitcoin Cash, you know, would if, if miners are favoring it, that that would kind of get that sort of nickname already. Right. Okay, well, let's scroll back in time a little bit and talk about the DAO and the lessons learned from the DAO. So just to give a little bit of an intro, I'll, I'll tee you up with kind of the story of the DAO. It was this crowdfunded, you know, one of the earlier ICOs, basically, uh, I, th- I think you would call it that, yeah, is, is this basically this this fund where people could have decentralized autonomous organizations. It would enable decentralized autonomous organizations, and it would be this big, I guess, system of smart contracts or smart contract in and of itself that would enable people to set up these organizations under it and they did an ICO, essentially, to raise some money for it. And they ended up raising a whole lot more money than they anticipated. And the code that was written for the, for the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, was open source. And people were looking at it. And in the run-up to the actual launch of the DAO, where people could start, I guess, transacting with it, you know, there was this professor who was looking at the code, and he's like, there's something wrong with this. I'm a little concerned about it. There's some bugs. These might be exploitable. But I guess the alarm wasn't sounded loudly enough, and the DAO launched, and then there was the hacking. And we can get into the hacking, but correct me on on anything I'm wrong with in, in teeing us up for a discussion of this. No, you got that exactly right. It was definitely an ICO. The SEC kind of weighed in on this last week. And said that they they did view it as a as a 
a securities offering and it was definitely an initial coin offering and they but they were declining to bring any charges because you know nobody associated with the DAO registered it as a security or, or went through any of those formal processes but they raised 10 times as much money as they thought Christoph Jens who was one of the co-founders of Slocket who they they were the creators of the DAO he told me he thought they'd maybe raise 5 to 10 million and they ended up raising 150 million over 28 days last year. He said it was the most stressful period of his life. And, and, and the most stressful of this whole time was when the, the, the money kept rolling in because it just it put this huge target on him and the pressure. It was just, can you imagine? I mean, and he said, you know, he thought if it was 5 million bucks and it got hacked, you know, the spread out value of that probably would have been not very much for, for how many people bought tokens. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But when it got to 150 million, that was, you know, the, he said, you know, it became too big to fail. The, the people who are pouring money into these things, do you know, like, who they are? Because I, I, I suspect that this stuff is still a little too difficult to transact with yeah. for it to be grandma. I mean, no, yeah, no, 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 not grandma. But think about this. Like, you're you're ahead of the curve here, and you get in on the Ether pre-sale or the sale of Ether. You know, that right. was also an ICO. It was, not sure if I have the dates, but it was like, you know, maybe a year or two or a year and a half before this or so. But I believe, you know, it went out to people in the know for five cents. Yeah. And, you know, I know people who, who bought, imagine buying a thousand dollars worth of it at five yeah. cents. Oh my and God. Then it's, and then, yeah, it goes up to $20, you know, right before the hack. So you're sitting on this huge pile of paper money, so basically, much money. paper value. There's there's nothing to spend it on, you know. So people you, just you, got people just got insanely rich. This is this is what yeah. I find so interesting. People got insanely rich on Bitcoin, and then more people got insanely rich off of Ether, and probably some people just like totally parlayed Bitcoin into Ether. Interest oh, rate, yeah. massive amounts of money. Yeah, we're talking billionaires, you know, like seriously legit. I I know people, just normal guys, you know, they're like, I have, you know, I've got seven hundred thousand dollars worth of digital currency in my account, you know, and and this one guy told me that he just brought at the presale and hasn't touched it since. So you know, that's that's the ether story, kind of because it went from zero to you know, it topped out at at four hundred dollars, but now it's more around two hundred. But still, that's an incredible. It's like a three or four thousand percent increase and so yeah so there's nothing else to do with ether yet and the dow comes along and it sounds like a great idea because you're going to allow the potential users of these digital apps to vote on you know ones that they think should be funded because they they think they're promising and that was the whole idea that gents had because like a lot of companies you know he needed to raise money for slocket which that their idea is it's it's a smart lock s lock you know it reminds me of s corp you know in from evil dead 2 right so a smart lock is something that is controlled by the internet of things and it's on the ethereum blockchain so if you want to rent a bike you know you and you come across one of these you can you can interact with the smart contract and you send it some ether and it unlocks the bike for you and you you pedal away so that's that was their idea, but they needed funding. And as he was going, you know, through the idea of like, okay, we'll do, you know, we'll sell a coin, we'll do, you know, the crowd raise like we do, like everybody else is doing. He just said, well, why should everybody have to do this? It's not very efficient. You know, he's a good coder. He's like, everybody wants to make things more efficient in their code. And he thought, let's just open it up for everybody, and we'll have this giant pool of money, 
and people will vote through a smart contract process on you know submissions or applications that they think are, are good and then they would get funded so that was the idea the code was pretty simple but you know there it was untested as, as well and there were several security flaws that that were brought to light before it went live hmm. indeed and let's take the listeners to that moment before it went live where well, I think so. You know, you, your story opens, and people should really read the story because it's really compelling. There's a Cornell professor of computer science. He's sick in bed, and he's concerned with the Dow. And was this? Oh, I can't remember if it opened like right before the Dow launched, or was it right after the Dow launched? So, the Dow was had launched, and the story opens five days before the hack. So it's it's a Monday night. And right. yeah, this Cornell professor, Eamon Gunn Sire, everyone calls him Gunn. He's in bed with a cold, but he's trading emails with one of his grad students and they're looking at the code and they, they just kind of do this for fun. You know, they go through code and, and look for bugs and they, they kind of just, you know, that's what they do. And he's looking at it and he's like, I think, you know, he's like, this, this looks like a bug here on the, it's a, I think it's a recursive call payment. I think that's the, the technical term. It's basically how you, I think it's, it's how you act, like how you get your money out of the DAO. And he notices that there's just some, some problems with the, the order that the code is written. And he, like, this is something you just cannot make up. It's on line 666 of, of the DAO code. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> here's, here's the bug. And he sends it to his grad student. He's like, I, th- I think there's a problem in line, you know, basically between line 666 and line 667. And his grad student, Phil Dan, who's, you know, really sharp guy, he's been looking at it and he's just, he doesn't think it's a problem. And so it's kind of late and, you know, Gunn is sick and he's like, okay, well, you know, let's, let's look at it. Like, all right, let's just move on. You know, nobody's paying me to do this. And you know, they, he told me later, you know, they, they often find things that, that they think are huge and they turn out to be nothing. Right. So you never know, right? You, you just don't know. So they kind of go to sleep and then, you know, basically four, four days later, overnight, that Thursday, people start waking up in the Western world to the, to the fact that the Dow is being drained, that a hacker has gotten in and has figured out a way. So... At this point, because of the rise in the price of Ether, the Dow now holds about $250 million. So there's a quarter of a billion dollars sitting in this smart contract. And it's got a huge backdoor flaw in line 666 of the code. And somebody has been planning this for weeks and they execute their attack and they just start, it just starts siphoning off handfuls of Ether at a time. So (laughs) the, the next scene is Christoph Jentz who wrote the code for Slocket. He's lying on the floor of his home office, taking deep breaths, trying not to panic because his baby is being attacked and it's in front of the entire world. And there's basically nothing you can do because one of the functions of a smart contract is that once it's launched and it's live, you can't change the code. It's, mm-hmm. it's immutable. Code yeah. is law is what you'll hear. And that the whole idea here is that you take out the middleman and you you try to make it as autonomous and perfect as you can before before it goes live and and here this one went live and the bug is there and so everybody is just freaking out and they don't know what to do indeed so what did they do 
So this is where it gets pretty interesting. Of course, this whole community is pretty tight-knit, and there, there, there's a lot of brilliant coders and, and hackers and folks who know their way around a line of code. And a group of them realized right away that the whole pot of money is basically at risk. And because they can't change the code, what they can do is try to replicate the hack and basically steal the money and keep it safe for the community before the, the bad guy can steal it and make off with it. So this group that came to me now, and they started calling themselves the Robin Hood group, aptly enough, they start getting on Skype and, and messaging around with each other. Some of them are in Germany. Some of them are in London. One of them is in Rio de Janeiro. And they all have different expertise in, in this different area. One of them, Griff Green, is kind of like the mayor of Ethereumville, what I call him in the story, because he just knows everybody. He's a very social guy. You, like, you can't help but love Griff once you've met him for like five seconds. He's just, he's a hugger. He's just a really sweet, good-natured guy. And so he starts interacting with everybody who's online and, and doing and interacting with the DAO. And he, so he's out there trying to find out who's who, like, so that he can try to pinpoint maybe, okay, we know who these five people are. There's only six people interacting with the DAO. Maybe the attacker is the sixth person. So he's on that. There's, there's other people who are better at, at coding and they're, they're figuring out, okay, here's the back door. Here's how we think the hacker has done his, his attack. And here's how we can start getting some code together and a smart contract together to kind of race the attacker and, and try to save, drain the DAO for, for good. And then there's somebody else, there, there's Alex Van de Sand, known as Absa on Reddit and Twitter. He's down in Rio and he's like, all right, somebody has to be the public face of this group so that when we start attacking, they don't think it's another bad guy, but it's, a, it's a us, it's the good guys. So he's like, I can do that. I can be the public face of this. And so they all sort of start assembling together, kind of like Charlie's Angels or like Ocean Eleven or something. And, you know, like the Skype messages are flying and the DAO is still being drained. And it's just, you know, like it's a crazy, I don't know, 12, 16 hours. And I think it's worth pointing out here that this is a really strong referendum on the positivity of the Ethereum community. And I think this happened again with the the ICO, like what, a couple weeks ago, where 77 million was was drained in the noble benefactor style. So basically, like the response to a hack is like, okay, let's get all the white hat hackers together and drain the money in a way that is putting it in a safe harbor until we can redistribute it safely to the people where it came from. And that is, like, just take a step back and like think about it. okay these people could just steal this 77 million dollars there's not even anything really technically illegal about it i mean maybe and maybe they could get prosecuted or something but just the fact that their instinct is we are protecting the system and we want the system to thrive i think it's a really strong referendum on the strength of the community yeah i i totally agree with you i think and that is it's a bit of a cliche that you hear it over and over again is that people believe in ethereum more than in Bitcoin because they say there's more developers in Ethereum. There's a more there's more of a sense of community. It's a more collaborative. You know, I'm not in those communities. I couldn't say yes or no to that, but I do hear that a lot. And I think for this example, at least, that is that is pretty solid proof that there are people who have the overall community. You know, the the welfare of it is important to them, and they. They weren't getting paid to do this, you know, nobody, like, this was not a concerted effort by any group or, you know, 
a lot of people try to blame the Ethereum Foundation or, or link it to them, and you know that's just not true. They, some of these guys have done work for the Ethereum Foundation, but this was just them coming together on their own to try to help right this wrong, and and it was it was quite amazing. And they really they were scrambling, like they were they didn't know what was going to happen, and so to kind of like in the in the TikTok here at some point I think around you know in, in the mid-morning that day it's now friday like in new york the attack stops and nobody quite knows why and so he's gotten away with the attacker roughly has about 55 million dollars worth of ether in his account and and so the group is sort of like they figured out the code and they they are pretty sure they know what to do to replicate the attack but it stops and they're they're sort of like you know now the questions start to swirl among the group. It's like, holy shit, are we, is this legal? Like, are we going to get in, tr- in trouble? Like this, this guy, I mean, what, what's different from what we're going to do from what this person is doing? And, you know, they don't really know. And like Absa said to me, he's like, you know, who pushes the button? You know, somebody's got to push the button. And it, it was sort of his, he, he kind of like realized that, all right, I can, I can push the button because he, you know, he cares about the community. He's the guy who, help design the Ethereum wallet, you know, function for the, for the Ethereum foundation. He, you know, and that's basically how you interact with the entire network. And so they had qualms, but they also, you know, I think at this point what they would say is they didn't want to do it on their own, but they were ready now. And if the attacker came back, you know, they, they were ready. So the funniest part about this is, is that another sort of like, you can't make this up, Absa's down in, in Rio in his apartment and he's in the Copacabana neighborhood and, and they're all sort of like the, they've made the smart contract and they, they basically have to walk the other some of the other guys in the group have to walk him through how to do it because it's not like his specialty so he's there in his apartment on his laptop and, and they've made the decision that you know there's all this money's at risk and they're, they're, they're going to try to get in there and be because re- what you have to do is you have to be ready to replicate the attack you don't have to launch the attack but you have to be ready to do it and so to take that initial step they were all set to go on that friday evening apps is literally like he's about to push the button and and his router goes out and he's just like you've got to be kidding me because basically his internet just goes down he's got nothing and he so he calls he calls his internet company down in Rio and he's like on the like the phone with the robot voice being like we're sorry, we detect that the internet is out in your neighborhood please be patient we are working to restore it as soon as possible and he's like you must be kidding me i'm trying to like steal this money back from this robot <laughs> and i'm on the phone with another robot telling me you know to be patient and he's just like it's just too much you know so the other twist here, and there are there are just so many twists in this story, is that you only have so much time to get in to launch your sort of initial uh, attack. And basically because his internet goes down, they, they miss the window. So now it's like they're done. They can't do anything. And they all kind of feel really defeated. Absa said to me, you know, I felt like I was going to kind of, we were going to come in and rescue, you know, save the day. And then basically we're the, we're the worst hackers in history. Oh, sorry. So they could not drain. They did not have time to drain the Dow. Yeah. The, the, so the internet went out on him initially. <laughs> and, and it's like the clock is ticking on the, on the smart contract because there's only a certain amount of time when you can get into this, this escape pod is what we call it in the story. to, to like. Uh. 
and they missed it. So if you're not, yeah, so. They, oh, so this is why they had to resort to a fork, or one well, of the reasons, I guess. Not, not quite. There's more twists and turns. So okay. they, they missed their initial attempt to do it. They, they couldn't get together the next day. They had family commitments, and everybody was sort of scattered around the world. But then that's the next Sunday. They get together, and they are uh, they're ready to go, and they launch. Like So to help your listeners, like the Dow think of it as a spaceship and the way these guys thought about it is like okay the spaceship is like the alien spaceship you know an alien and it's got the self-destruct sequence and if you want to get your money out you have to get into an escape pod and and you have to like ask it to 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 get your money out and to take it's a smart contract and it, and it puts it takes your money and it puts it in something called the child dow so it's a sub account it's not it's, it's out of the dow but and it's in a child dow and this was the, the back door that the hacker used was in this functionality. So to, to replicate the hacker, the, the White Hats, the Robin Hood group, had to be in one of those child DAOs. You have to ask it to initiate a child DAO. I think it's like seven days. It takes seven days for you to, to do it. So And then it's like the clock starts ticking. And if you're not ready and in it when it closes, then you're, you're, not, you're still in a DAO. You're not outside in a, ch- a child DAO account. So they had to wait for another like opportunity to get into one of the ongoing child DAOs, and they eventually did. So now they're ready to go. They're sort of in place, but again, the qualms set in, and they don't want to break the law. They don't want to do it if it doesn't have to be done. So they're just kind of sitting there, and then a few days later, because the, the, the hacker had like back. the hacker had like stopped draining money. So they were like, okay, maybe he gave up. Right. Right. Maybe he gave up. Maybe he's making a point. Maybe the contract broke because what, what it's doing is it's telling the DAO, take my money out and give it to me. And the, the bug that he exploited was that it allowed him to do that over and over and over again. So even if you only had, say, you know, $100 worth of Ether in the DAO, you could withdraw that $100 over and over until you had, you know, 1000 or 10000 Ether. And... And so that's how he was able to, 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 to get all the money out. But apparently that kind of that intensity on the smart contract can, can break it at a certain point. So they weren't sure if that's what happened or if he stopped on purpose. But in any case, a couple days later, once the White Hat guys are ready to go, the bad guy comes back and he starts draining the Dow. So now they're ready to go and they basically all get together and they launch, they launch the counterattack and they start draining, you know. So the best way to think about it is, at this point, at the beginning, there was about 12 million Ether inside the DAO, and that's how you get the value of it. And the value of Ether, of course, fluctuates. The attacker had drained about 30% of, of that 12 million. So mm-hmm. he had, you know, 7.2 or, yeah. So, so he's got that. There's 70% remaining, and that's basically the race is between the White Hats and the Black Hat to get that 70%. And so they kind of go from there and they enlist the help of the community. Griff goes out and AFSA, they go out to like people they know who have a ton of, of ether in the DAO. And they ask them like, hey, man, I need all of your ether, <laughs> if you don't mind, to help, you know, like drain the DAO. And, and amazingly, people are like, yeah, here you go. And so because, because they had like now they had... I don't know, like, let's just make up a number 10 times as much ether at their disposal versus the, the black hat guy. They, they could drain 
the Dow much more efficiently and quickly. So basically, they won the race. And at the end of the day, the white hats had the 70% secure and the black hat had the 30% secure. Mm-hmm. So now this is all maybe within a week of the attack, right? So this is all very frenetic, very frantic. So they're doing this, you know, sort of behind the scenes. At this point, definitely behind the scenes. I think they made some, they did make some overtures, you know, on Twitter and on on some some other, you know, Slack channels and things to let people know that they were good guys, they weren't stealing, that they were doing this to protect it. But it was, it was definitely, I think, behind the scenes because they were worried about the legal consequences. Then on the other side, you know, you have the whole rest of the community being like, oh, my God, what is what are we going to do? Everybody starts talking about how to fix this through the blockchain. And that's where we, we come to this sort of debate about a soft fork and a hard fork. And uh, folks like Vitalik Buterin, who invented Ethereum, are, are very involved. There, there's a huge debate that begins... People in the Bitcoin world start chiming in because, you know, to a lot of them, you can't change the software. The blockchain is immutable. That's like, that's the whole point. And and so this whole debate starts getting going and it's rather fascinating. And that's what, that's what's going to get us to the hard fork decision. Okay. And so real quick, the difference between a hard fork and a soft fork is that if you make a hard fork, you're saying that this new version of the blockchain is not compatible with old software versions of the blockchain. So everybody, you know, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. Soft fork, you're making a new, you're making a fork that is back compatible. So I guess with a hard fork, you're invalidating some percentage of the original blockchain. Not quite exactly. Okay. I I think about it this way. The soft fork idea was that they were going to blacklist the Ethereum that had been stolen. And they were going to try to, you know, the idea was like, okay, we'll come up with a system that will not allow that Ethereum to be sold or moved. Anytime it does, you know, we'll be alerted and, and we'll we'll do it that way. And not to get into the details, but that they just, people realized that that was too difficult to maintain. And it just sort of kind of came and went as an idea. So the next idea was, you know, the hard fork. And rather than like at this point because the the, the blockchain is growing of course there's still people using the ethereum blockchain so transactions are being added you you can't invalidate all of those transactions that would just that would be impossible and, and a really bad precedent so the hard fork basically what it was was they were going to redesign the code of the dao to simply do one thing if you had money if you had invested in the dao you were now going to be able to get your money out so they would they would launch that smart contract on a block that is you know a certain number of blocks down the chain from where the original DAO was. It would link back to the DAO, and and any interactions with the DAO would now work on this new contract that is just basically come get your money out. And to do that, they had to convince the entire network running Ethereum to to upgrade to that version of the software that had this one change in it. So I was confused by this too, and it, it, you, you can't go back and change the history of the blockchain or, all those, or invalidate all those transactions that have happened in the meantime, because we're talking about a month between when the hack occurred in June and when the hard fork was implemented in July of 2016. Oh, right. So that's a, that's a lot of transactions. And if like you went back and just wiped that out, everybody would be like, screw you, I'm out of here, this, thing, this is for amateurs, right? <laughs> 
so that's the nuts and bolts of it. It's still, it was really kind of contentious, you know, and people, like, there's a lot of heated debate, as, as you've seen in the Bitcoin block size limit debate. People take this really seriously, and they get emotional. And, I, I, you know, a lot of people have their lives invested into it, and it was just, you know, a lot of back and forth. But at the end of the day, the community, they, like, they, they put out the update, and the vast majority of, of nodes running the Ethereum blockchain upgraded to that version. It was something more than 99%, and everybody celebrated, you know, that they opened some champagne, they, you know, people were like, all right, this is great, we've done it. And it basically invalidated everything that the attacker had done because of another quirk in the way the DAO was designed. And so the way I, I thought about it in the story was, you know, on the one hand, Christoph Jentz, you know, he wrote he wrote a big bug unknowingly into the code that allowed the attack to happen. But on the other hand, the way he wrote the DAO allowed it to be saved because when you initiated a, a child DAO, when you basically, for whatever reason, you said, I want out, you had to ask to do that, and it, then it took seven days. And then the money that you had would be moved to the child DAO, and you had to wait for 30 days, or maybe it was 27 days or 28 days, to get that money out. So there's this long waiting period, you know, more than four weeks. So basically the, the attacker, he robbed the DAO, but it was like he had to kind of sit there at the curb by the bank, you know, with his bags of cash waiting for his getaway car to show up, you know, four weeks later. <laughs> and so by doing the hard fork in between the, that time, but when he could have made off with his money, they basically stole it back. And now the attacker had, had nothing to show for his effort. And that was, you know, I think that was a big reason that the community wanted to go along with this was because it, it really just sort of like they hacked the hacker. Mm -hmm. So, did you say the that... next twist? Are you are you ready for the next twist? Okay, sure. Let's go to the next twist. <laughs> so the the next twist is, so as I, as we said earlier in the show, what's a hard fork? Okay, well, it's meant to put the chain in a certain direction with a change to the underlying code, right through an update. But that doesn't stop people from not choosing the update and, and still working off of the original version of the software. So, and this is now, now we're back in July of 2016. And I think Bitcoin had done a little, a few things like this, but nothing as, as major and nothing as, as publicized. So for the first time, the, the guys like Absa and, and Eamon and, and Goon and Christoph Jentz, they're all watching this and they see the hard fork and it's, a, it's adopted by more than 99% of the nodes running on Ethereum. But there's this little, there's this little sliver that didn't and they're like, wow, why, why isn't it 100%? We don't understand. So they're just kind of scratching their heads. Then they start to notice that, that miners are working off the old chain. And by the old chain, I mean that that's the, that's the original chain. That's Ethereum. The fork is, is well, I'm sorry, that's a, that becomes Ethereum Classic, the old chain that still has the DAO attack in it. Yes. So the history of that chain has the DAO attack. And so people are just like, wow, okay, this is now kind of wild, and we're into like the fourth dimension here. And people start building on that chain, and, and pretty soon, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people uh, say that they want to support it. Some of them are you know people from the bitcoin community who don't like ideologically believe in forks um so they're, they're just like this is the true history of the blockchain we're going to support it and other people i think see an opportunity to get in at the very early stage of ethereum classic you know which of course basically starts at zero but soon has a value and it goes up to a dollar or two dollars you know 
So they've watched Bitcoin rise in price. They've watched Ethereum rise in price. And I think there's just some people who want to jump in. So what's happened is now you've got Ethereum Classic. And as I said, on that chain, the DAO attack still lives. Mm -hmm. So the attacker now has 30% of his attack. It's just not in Ether anymore. It's in Ethereum Classic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the White Hats have that 70%, not in Ether, but in Ethereum Classic. So basically, to kind of make a long story short, through all of this, the White Hats sort of like, they didn't really pay attention or, or they chose not to really kind of continue to go after the attacker on the Ethereum Classic chain. And this is this is what they refer to as the DAO Wars. Because w- what it is, is you have to constantly be watching for the attacker to be trying to get out in his child DAO and then and then move the money. And you have to follow him and attack him and, and try to like stop him from doing it so that he has to do it again and again and again. And it just would go on in perpetuity. And I think because, you know, the folks who who were the white hat in the white hat group had saved all of the actual ether, you know, in the original attack, or they had saved seventy percent, and then the hard fork had had returned it to a hundred percent. They were like, you know, that's good enough. So, so, so l- let's be clear: the value that the hacker ended up getting was the money from Ethereum Classic that was created just like i mean i'm sure he couldn't have seen that coming he or she couldn't have seen that coming and that's where the vast majority of his value came from is the fork yes it's it's the entire value of of his theft that that's where yeah so that's you know one of the final and craziest twists is that the solution to to restoring the ether led to the thief you know having some of his money or you know having value again in ethereum classic so I think it's worth taking a step back here and saying this is pretty good proof in the whole thesis of like fiat currency is just what you make of it. Like you can invent a currency today and say this piece of cardboard is worth $18 and if people believe you then it's worth $18 and and money is just Money is an illusion, and we can just we can say we can invent money, and as long as we come to a consensus around the fact that this is worth, or enough people come to a consensus that this is worth some amount of money, that we can convert this into dollars, which, by the way, started in this kind of in the same way. That's a currency. Yeah. Besides all the technical kind of fascinating aspects to it, and the the social aspects, there's a, a real philosophical aspect to all of this as well you know the, the the theory of money and 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 yeah it's just a mind bender you can just kind of go deeper and deeper and deeper into this story or just into the implications of this story and it's definitely not something that's just sort of an, an artifact that happened last year we're seeing it with the bitcoin fork now and i mean i don't think anybody like if you had asked i'm not, do you think Satoshi Nakamoto thought that there would be a bitcoin cash <laughs> i mean <laughs> i kind of doubt it yeah uh, <laughs> Well, okay, so let's let's now go there because let's talk about how this because so the DAO hack led to this Ethereum Classic and Ethereum normal Ethereum, and there were people who were poo pooing that. And you know, I, I should point out. So I was doing shows about Bitcoin and blockchain and Ethereum a year and a half ago when Ethereum launched. Or I guess that was about two years ago, almost two years at this point, and. 
there were Bitcoin maximalists even back then, and they were telling me that Ethereum is just going to end in disaster. This thing is too ambitious. They're totally crazy. They don't know what they're doing. I got to admit, I was actually a little bit swayed by them. Like, I, I ended up doing a show called Ethereum Skepticism, where I was basically like, okay, what, you know, what's all the reasons to be skeptical of Ethereum? And, you know, but since then, you know, the Ethereum community has turned out to be so strong and, and so intelligent. Now I'm, I'm a lot more open-minded about this stuff. And why don't you frame the ideology that's that's being represented so so strongly and and angrily and all the animosity that's going on today? Frame that in terms of the Ethereum fork. Yeah, sure. I think that was a lot of people's experience back in that time frame. You know, whether Ethereum could survive this uh, debate was was def- definitely a, an open question. I think that that was something that you had to sort of take seriously. What I find interesting about it is that frame of the argument is allowing the Bitcoin community to define the Ethereum community. And I don't, I don't think, you know, I certainly don't think the Ethereum community thinks that that's how it should work. And I don't think I've spoken to, or I've I've emailed with Vitalik and he's told me that the, the sort of immutable type of blockchain that's, that Bitcoin has been built around is not, he's not interested in it. He's interested in, in making something that works and, you know, if and when the network needs to be tweaked or, or changed, they're open to it. And it's not, it's it's kind of not a big deal to the, I think, the core guys in Ethereum, uh, the way that it is a big deal to the, the people who are in the core camp on the Bitcoin blockchain. So it's just a sort of ideological difference, you know, and I think one persuasive thing that's been said to me by more than than one person is look in the business world do you really want to get involved in something that can't be changed you know mistakes are made like transactions go bad and if you can't go back and and audit and change the history of your business that's kind of like eh, why i don't think that sounds great (laughs) so something that that does have more flexibility while coming from the sort of hardcore crypto world sounds like a betrayal I think in the more mainstream world, it sounds like kind of like something you'd want and a, and a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bitcoin Cash versus regular Bitcoin. This is something that is like happening right now as we speak. And Coinbase put out something. Coinbase is the, the biggest exchange of cryptocurrencies, biggest, safest. And, you know, tons of people have Bitcoin sitting on Coinbase and Coinbase said we're not going to support Bitcoin Cash. So we've already addressed this idea that you know if you're with Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, what happened was okay, this fork occurred and you got money in both of these places. So the money in Ethereum Classic, like we said, was quite material, and this was money that allowed the hacker to actually benefit from hacking the DAO. And Coinbase basically said, look, we don't care that you have X million dollars in in Bitcoin. Well, they didn't say we don't care, but they said we're not going to support it. So whereas, you know, if if this fork occurred, this this fork did occur between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, everybody should, you know, know, if we're taking the lessons of the Ethereum fork to be the standard, you should get a copy of your currency in both of the forks. So... Why wouldn't? Gosh, I have so much. I have, to, I have trouble like wrapping my mind around this. But 
why wouldn't Coinbase support that? Why wouldn't Coinbase give you as much Bitcoin cash as you get in Bitcoin? That is a good question. And I don't feel like I'd want to answer for Coinbase. I'm interviewing somebody from Coinbase, I think, tomorrow. So I will get the, I will get the answer to that question. <laughs> okay, wait. I think, okay, so thank God for Twitter because I forget things that I see on Twitter and then, you know, because there's so much and then it comes back up. And oh, it just bubbled, bubbled up into my mind. What you have to do to list a new asset on an exchange like Coinbase or Gemini that you have to go to every state where you are regulated because they're regulated as money transfer agents and you have to apply to them to say okay I have a new I have a new asset it's called bitcoin cash and I want to I want to list it on my exchange so I believe it's not maybe coinbase didn't you know do the messaging as well as they could have but it's not something like they just flip a switch and now all of a sudden <laughs> you you have bitcoin cash oh. so that that might be part of the answer here and you know, so yeah. Uh, <laughs> another another fun thing. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna front run myself a little bit, but a story I'm working on is you know when you deal with Coinbase, your transactions don't touch the blockchain. You're dealing with Coinbase as mm. they they have an internal ledger. They have a bunch of Bitcoin in an internal account and a bunch of cash in an internal account and a bunch of Ether and a bunch of Litecoin. And when you go there and you say, all right, I want to buy a hundred Bitcoin. They're like, okay, where's your cash? Okay, there it is in your account. And now I'm going to take the cash from your account and I'm going to take the Bitcoin from my account and I'm going to swap them. They're a side chain. They're not even a side chain. They are like, I don't think, because that like implies that there's some link to the actual blockchain, but there isn't. Oh. So the, so now it's it's just in, in their internal controls. And oh, right. if you if you want to have your that 100 Bitcoin that you just bought from Coinbase on the blockchain, you need to move it out of Coinbase onto your wallet. Wow. That does that does have a, uh, an address, and not many people know that. And I think as as this get, becomes more popular and the price goes up and people get it's more attention, we feel like you know at Bloomberg that like it's part of our job to educate folks that you know this is how this is how this stuff works. Like everybody kind of if you want to know how the New York Stock Exchange works, you can find I don't know how many books on it, but. <laughs> You know, at this point, how Coinbase works is sort of like, well, you know, it's it's a their security. I don't mean to say anything about you know they they're all by all accounts they have very good security, but it's it's a developing kind of situation and a developing um, interaction. Right. So when you're buying something on Coinbase, you're not actually buying the cryptocurrency asset. You're essentially buying an asset that is pegged to the value of Bitcoin, but it's not actually Bitcoin. I'm not sure I'd say it that way. It, it is Bitcoin. It's just not in your possession. One of the roles the exchanges play is also of custodian. So you now have bought your Bitcoin, but Coinbase, unless you take it out of Coinbase and put it in your wallet, they're acting as a custodian for it. So they actually own the you know own the Bitcoin that that you purchased. So if you if you, if that's something you don't like to do you know you need to take it out and put it in your wallet and then it's under your own personal control a lot of people feel just for convenience sake they leave it with coinbase or maybe they don't know that this is how it works you know i don't really know but i tell you i i was reporting on this for two years and i just learned that a couple weeks ago and it, it surprised me okay so matt you've been really generous with your time and i want to go a little bit further but i i'll be respectful of your time and we'll we'll wrap up soon but I, you know, I wanted to just ask you just a little bit about what it's like reporting these days and what it's like being at Bloomberg 
because it feels like the news cycle has just like changed. I don't know something happened with the with the presidency presidential election where you know I guess it made everybody's hair stand up on end. It made Twitter a whole lot better. Like I mean, just in terms of like the quality and the the velocity of information that's coming on. And, uh, you know, I've I've interviewed your colleagues, Brad Stone and Lizette Chapman about, you know, varying topics. And it's just, I just always love talking to reporters because they're so good at putting a a verbal flourish to the technical topics that I cover in, in, in technical detail. But maybe you could just tell me, like, what it's like being a reporter in 2017 and your perspective on the news and perhaps what it's like to work at Bloomberg. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, Jeff, for this. It's been really, really fun. And I really appreciate your interest in the story and just the space in general. So this is, this is hour has flown by. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. It's the, the pace of like every week I just laugh because somebody's like, God, that was a crazy week in crypto. Right. And it's like, yeah, every week it's a crazy week. Like we're only on Wednesday here and you know, we've already got the fork and Bitcoin cash and God knows what's going to happen next. So it is really hard to keep up with it. We've recently expanded the number of reporters we have who cover this just because we're getting more and more interest from Bloomberg subscribers on the terminal for any info on you know what's going on with these di- digital assets and and the underlying blockchain sort of revolution or whatever you want to call it it's you know it drives web traffic like crazy you know it's twitter like loves this stuff it just it's the fuel you know that sort of makes it all go and so the challenge is you know like in the ico craze how do we possibly know what's a good ico and what's a bad ico we're not necessarily trained to read through white papers and figure out that this is like sounds good or doesn't. So we've taken a much more general, like 30,000 foot view on ICOs where it's just like, this is, you know, this is going crazy. They're raising more money than venture capitalists and sort of not tried to, because whether we like it or not, you know, when you write about something, it puts a sort of imprimatur on it and it, it kind of legitimizes certain things. So, mm. you know, we, we want to be careful with the Bloomberg reputation to do our due diligence and, and just do solid reporting that we're known for. But when things move this fast, it, it becomes, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And I think, you know, it's a rarity kind of in this world where you knew that like, okay, August 1st was coming and there's going to be the vote, you know, for Bitcoin. And, and it's like, so we could prepare for it. The Bitcoin cash stuff, that's what, like, you kind of sort of have to be more ready to go on the fly and just sort of roll with it because I don't, you know, nobody was talking about that a couple months ago. It just sort of, you know, suddenly popped up a few, like a week or two ago, I think. And so it's fascinating and it's kind of like, I think it helps for an organization like Bloomberg to have folks like my colleagues, Lily Katz or Camilla Russo, who are like day to day, they're like, they're blasting out really great spot news stories on what's going on, prices, the volatility. And then I'm more of like, okay, what's the big picture stuff? How do we, how do we do a smart story on, you know, what's going on and and what needs more deeper reporting so we can kind of hit it from both sides. But you really, I mean, to stay up on this, you need you need to be on Reddit. You need to be watching Coinbase or Coindesk. You know, you need to be watching Forbes. You know, there's just a lot of great outlets for many different aspects. You know, there's Laura Shin has a great podcast on this uh, Unchained. So I think it's there's just it's a fire hose right now. And any reporter or news organization, I think, would feel stupid trying to own it. 
and we just all have to do what we do best. And hopefully, you know, it's up to the readers and listeners out there to just sort of put together a menu so that they can get as, as holistic a picture as they can. This is something, yeah, I just, when I talked to Brad, you know, one of the things I asked him, and this is obviously coming from my biased perspective, because I run Software Engineering Daily with, with one other person, Erica, uh, helps me out a ton, but it's not a news organization. It's, it's like not, it's not Bloomberg, it's not the New York Times. And when I was talking to Brad Stone about it, I was like, you know, it's kind of nice doing what I do because I get to own my own destiny. I don't have to answer to anybody. You know, I kind of make my own deadlines. I get to, you know, handle the, I get the uncapped upside of my own business and my own reporting. Yeah. And you yeah, don't get I that. I you for some, sometimes. <laughs> well, so, and, but, but this is what I said to Brad. And I was like, so why, you know, you're Brad Stone. Why don't you just like open a Patreon account and become like the Brad Stone channel? And you could like make a really good living just as Brad Stone or just write books all the time. Like, why not? Why are you spending your time getting your upside capped by working for a large organization that that takes you know the upside beyond your salary and whatever stock they give you and now i'm starting to understand because you can do things at a large news organization that you simply cannot do and like you said there's the imprimatur your words are going to not just have the the impact of matt lysing it's matt lysing times bloomberg with all of the the reputation that comes with Bloomberg, it's just an interesting you know place where we are at today with news. Where and you know talk about centralization, right? Like I would argue, you can't, you don't want a a news ecosystem where everybody is just individual reporters, and you have to go out and figure out like which of these reporters do I trust. It helps to have centralized outlets that have internal vetting processes. And that's why, like, you know, when I look at that kind of centralization, I think the same kind of centralization is needed on the blockchain, which is why I'm a fan of the sidechain lightning network story. But, you know, that's certainly a different, certainly a a different episode. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, Matt, it's been great talking to you. I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, Jeff, thank you so much. This has been really, really fun.